0: Welcome to everyone coming in the web into the webinar. We will get started at the top of the hour. Thank you to everyone joining the webinar. We will get started in just a minute or two. Well, welcome to today's j and um, Journal Club webinar. It's actually the final webinar in the fall series where we are recognizing the best of j and B. And today we are um, speaking to the authors of one of the papers recognized as a high impact article. Uh, that means it had received, it was one of five articles to receive the most citations um, in the year that we looked at. Um, so, very excited to he- hear from these authors today of an article that's really making a difference. Uh, my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the executive director of the Society for Nutrition Education and Behavior, and glad you're joining us. I will go ahead and put the slides for today's presentation into the chat box Um, so you could download those and follow along. I have also turned on the um, caption, the closed caption feature. So if that's helpful to you, um, you can turn that um, feature on as well as we go through the presentation. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the presentation, but the authors had mentioned if there's a point of clarification that would be helpful to you as, the, as we are going through the presentation, um, don't hesitate to go ahead and put that in the chat box um, so we can clarify that question um, instead of sa- saving that to the end. Um, Then, just a reminder, uh, when I close the webinar, there's a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future webinars. Then watch for a follow-up email. Um, It should come from Zoom by Wednesday of this week that has a link to the recording, um, the slides uh, as a handout, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance today. So I will turn things over to our moderator, um, Dr. Kristen Di Filippo is a teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Today I get to introduce our three presenters. Uh, Dr. Carrie Durward, registered dietitian, is an associate professor in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Science and Extension Nutrition Specialist at Utah State University. Her programming and research is focused on community nutrition development, implementation, and evaluation. Her research focuses on community nutrition, program evaluation, and nutrition behavior management. Her extension programming has focused on online nutrition education, fruit and vegetable access, and hunger relief. Dr. Matea Savoy-Roskas is the Associate Dean for Academic Programs and Student Services for the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University. She is also an Associate Professor and Master Public Health Program Director in the Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Sciences Department at USU. Matea teaches graduate-level courses, including motivational interviewing for health professionals and hunger issues and solutions. Matea focuses her research on farmer's market incentives, food insecurity, nutrition education, gardening interventions, motivational interviewing, and other areas in public health nutrition. In her free time, she enjoys being out in the mountains with her, husband's two daughter, with her husband, two daughters, and two dogs. Dr. Ebiodin Adelay, Is an assistant professor in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Sciences at Utah State University. She seeks to understand factors that conflict with healthy food access, nutrition practices and behavior, environmental conditions, economic factors, policy, public perceptions, and education. She is particularly interested in providing opportunities to address them through community led solutions. Her current projects include nutrition education, food safety, racial equity in the food system, and environmental related diet disparities. I want to thank the three of them for being here today. And at this point I can pass it over to our presenters.
2: Thank you very much, Kristen and uh, Rachel for that great introduction. Um, we're excited to be here today and talk a little bit about our, our article, um, focusing mainly on kind of looking at the big picture of, uh, what uh, led to the article, what's come since then, and where this field of research needs to look in the future. So um, none of us have any actual or potential conflicts of interest in relationship to this um, program. I do wanna make you aware of the nutrition educator competencies. So within the area of food and nutrition policy, Um, We're gonna be talking about collaborations that we have with um, different organizations that make this work possible. In the area of program design, implementation and evaluation, we're gonna be discussing evaluation evidence that should be helpful as people are designing or selecting theory-based behavior change strategies to try to increase accessibility and and consumption of fruits and vegetables for the low-income population. And then in the research methods area, we're going to talk about the different methods uh, that we've used uh, briefly um, in our different studies to analyze and evaluate our um, nutrition incentive program here in Utah. And if anybody has any questions, I'm sure we'd be happy to elaborate more on our methods during the Q&A section. So our objectives or our questions to be answered throughout this uh, this talk, we are going to start by talking about kind of the policy programming and, and research factors that led up to this publication. And then we're going to briefly describe the publication in question. And then we're going to focus on uh, describing briefly some of our different research and program evaluation efforts in this area of work census publication. Then we are going to uh, talk about the body of work as a whole. Um, I I can't talk about all of the uh, fantastic papers that have been published since since our publication, Uh, but luckily a recent systematic review and meta-analysis has been published. So we'll use that as a lens uh, to kind of look at the body of evidence as a whole. And then we'll end by um, talking a little bit about what we see as the, the research and programming needs and questions going forward. So with that,
3: I will turn things over to Dr. Savoy-Roskas. Thank you. And uh, we really appreciate you all being here today, your interest in farmer's market incentives and to taking the time out of your busy schedules. So we thought we'd start just kind of with a big picture introduction because this is really where Dr. Durward and I started years ago when we were considering what we wanted to research when I was a, a doctoral candidate at Utah State University and a couple of the areas that we wanted to focus on were food security and fruit and vegetable intake and as a reminder food insecurity is the inability to access a sufficient quantity of safe affordable and nutritious foods currently the prevalence rate is uh, you know hovering around 10% but i think we all recognize that there are a lot of you know geographical community Um, and other environmental and individual factors that make it so these rates can vary from one area to another. We also recognize that dietary intake of this population of food insecure individuals is less nutritious and less balanced than their higher income counterparts. So these were two particular areas that when we were looking and considering different intervention strategies that we could research uh, that we wanted to hone in on. And prior to our work, you know, there were there was a great deal of uh, programming that was being done related to farmers market incentive programming, and that was really done to try to increase fruit and vegetable intake and food security status of this population. Kate, uh, Carrie, do you mind going to the next slide? Thank you. This is kind of our timeline of. uh, From when we started this work to the present time. And I first want to acknowledge that, you know, we started this work in 2014, but there were some really incredible pioneers in this area, public health professionals and researchers who had done work, really important foundational work in farmers market incentives before we arrived at the scene. And in 2014, we were lucky enough to to receive some really small pilot funding from Utah State University Extension as an opportunity to start investigating farmers market incentives here in Utah, which was new to our state. And that, uh, that funding and that work resulted in a couple of really foundational publications for us that really kind of got the ball rolling as we continued our partnerships moving forward. And we were fortunate enough to partner with the uh, Utahns Against Hunger, which is one of our partnering agencies here in the state of Utah. And they received the Feeney Grant early on in in 2015 to 2017. And and Dr. Durwood was able to be a part of that, uh, that grant and really be solicited for her evaluation expertise. And so we were able to continue with our evaluation work as part of that grant. And then the funding changed from being part of Utah's Against Hunger to being funded through the Utah Department of Health and Human Services, who received the GUSNIP grant in late 2019 through the present time. And we've continued to work with our partner at Utah Department of Health to continue this evaluation work of this program and continuing to work towards uh, publishing those efforts. Carrie, next slide. Just to give you a little sense of what uh, Utah Double Up Bucks looks like in our state. So you'll see over on the left-hand side, there are a couple of pictures of uh, market tables. And this is really common here in Utah. It really can vary as to the size of the market and uh, other kind of market characteristics as to exactly what that table looks like and what it's comprised of. But we have folks that sit at that table so that individuals can use their credit cards, they can use the the EBT machine and uh, swipe their EBT card, let the folks at that table know how much they would like to use off of their EBT card at that farmer's market. And then they get tokens for the market that they're located at and they can then get matched a dollar for dollar um, with their double up incentives. And that uh, kind of varies depending on the time period And that timeline as to you know, how much that double up match was. Um, it's ranged from 10 to $30 per visit. We wanted to start by giving a very brief introduction to our first study that we conducted here in Utah, and this was published in JNEB in 2016, Reducing Food Insecurity and Improving Fruit and Vegetable Intake Among Farmers Market Incentive Program Participants. So we took our minimal funding, and we had a group of Double Up Food Bucks participants uh, who we asked to complete a pretest before participating in double up food Bucks, and then a post test after participation. And this survey included the six-item validated Burfus questionnaire for fruit and vegetable intake. It included the food security module, the six-item short food security module from the USDA, and then a variety of other questions regarding demographics, use of nutrition assistance, shopping habits. And uh, then we're able to gather that data before and after that participation in the program. In the, the kind of the key results uh, for the sake of time, uh, we had some really interesting findings that we just uh, thought are important as we kind of continued our journey moving forward. And one is we did find that there was a significant difference in significant increase in consumption of other vegetables, which uh, is uh, important and kind of consistent with the types of vegetables that these folks uh, were, Often um, the, the types of fruits and vegetables, or vegetables in this case, that are being sold at the farmers' markets here in Utah at that time of year. We had 86% of participants who recorded an increase in fruit and vegetable consumption, a similar percent of participants who recorded an increase in the variety. And a couple of mentions that, that I points that I wanna mention that aren't included here is that. We also saw that participants reported a decrease in food insecurity-related behaviors, so things like skipping meals, eating less food, feeling hungry, not having enough money to buy nutritious foods, and in general, that median score of food security decreasing significantly from pre to post. So we saw some significant improvements in vegetable intake and some significant improvements in food security status. As you can imagine, with any pilot study, there were limitations and lessons learned, which we have taken with us as we've continued on in this research area. So as a pilot study, we used a small, convenient sample. We were limited with a a small number of farmers' markets where our individuals were able to um, get their use the double up food box. And as a result, we weren't powered to determine significant differences. We had our convenience sample, which we know can generalize the, excuse me, that can limit the generalizability of study results. We also were limited based on self-reported dietary data. So we didn't have any objective measures for dietary intake. And then lastly, we did not have a control group, which we know can limit some causal inference. We also, as a lesson learned, found it difficult to follow up with our participants. And uh, we had, you know, contact information, phone numbers, emails, and it was uh, difficult to get uh, individuals uh, um, to complete that follow-up survey. And that's really what decreased our sample size down to that 54. So those are kind of some pieces that uh, as we were able to get more funding and able to look at next steps with program evaluation we considered when we moved forward. So now I wanted to just pass it over to Carrie to talk about uh, our next uh, article.
2: Thanks, Matea. Um, So this article is the one that uh, is technically the headline article. Um, This uh, was very similar to the article that Matea just spoke about. Um, but we collected data the year later after the Feeney program, after the Feeney grant was, was awarded. And so the program had been expanded from one farmer's market where we were trying to collect, uh, participants, um, for the pilot study and to, to quite a few markets around the state of Utah. And so just like Matea said, um, We did a very similar methodology. We still, you know, we still did not have a a ton of funding for this. We were, we were doing this on a a programming grant, the Feeney Grant, where most of the funding was supposed to support incentives. Um, But um, we were able to conduct a similar pre post survey, we did a paper survey at the farmers market, you can see an example of what that looked like um, in the first photo there, a friendly smiling person with swag, as well as um, uh, a few extra Double Up Food Bucks tokens uh, as incentive. And we were able to recruit uh, 339 people. Again, we used uh, the fruit and vegetable screener from the Behavior Risk Factor Surveillance System. Um, and a couple of reasons why we, we chose to use that screener uh, we liked how short it was, and um, although it's generally, looked to look, generally used to look at population level um, intake amounts, uh, it had been validated uh, for use with individuals. And the other thing that we really liked about it is because it is collected on a, a statewide basis, we could compare our results to Um, You know, the results that were gathered by the the Burfus survey uh, conducted by the Utah Department of Health every year or every few years in in our state. Um, We also, again, use the USDA six-item short-form household food security module. Um, so then we, um, the, the BRFSS, as well as the household food security module, we were asking them about the previous month. So we tried to follow up with people, um, about four weeks later, uh, but with the number of participants that we were trying to contact and, uh, continuing difficulties, getting, getting, uh, people to respond. Um, I don't think it's just the low income population. I think these days people just don't enjoy answering their telephone phone. And so um, since we did this work, there's been, uh, I think, a lot of great work done with um, uh, texting people and um, getting them to respond uh, to to research requests. And if we were doing this again today, I'd probably do something more like that. Um, But we were able to follow up with 138 individuals, which gave us much more power to uh, look at um, uh, changes in the, the fruit and vegetable intake. And so our participant characteristics um, in general, um, we uh, recruited a a very white, a very female population. Um, The average age was about 40 and the average number of children in the household was 1.7. And so this is generally, um, Utah, Utah is a very white state, but this is a little bit more white than we would expect looking at the overall SNAP population. And compared to the overall state of Utah population, this is actually slightly fewer children um, than, we, than we generally have um, and on average. And so when we looked at the Burfus um, data and how it changed um, from their, their first visit to the farmer's market baseline to when we were able to follow up with them an average of, of seven weeks later, we did see an increase in the fruit and vegetable intake. And so the average increased about 1.7 times per day. The averages that we were looking at uh, were were actually quite high, about um, four moving up to um, uh, five and, uh, 5.7. And um, when we looked at the data, we saw that it was it was pretty skewed, which is not unusual for dietary data. And so we ended up looking at medians Uh, to do our statistical testing. And so the median change was about 0.63 times per day. We went from about 2.8 times per day at baseline to about 3.3 at follow-up. And this was very similar to what we saw for the entire state of Utah population in 2015, which was 2.93 times per day. Um, And so that gave us some confidence in our measure uh, that we were uh, getting appropriate amounts. We also saw the same as uh, we did in Matea's, a significant decrease in food insecurity, a significant increase in food security, though um, um, though, about um, a, a little bit less than half of our participants would have still been considered food insecure uh, by the end of the seven weeks. <clears throat> we had a lot of the. This- same limitations that Matea just talked about. Um, so our convenience sample really does limit the generalizability of our study results. Um, like I discussed, our our population was a little bit different uh, than uh, the general population of SNAP individuals, as well as the general population of Utah. Um, probably due to who heard about the program, who decided to use it. We also um, continued to needed to use self-reported dietary data, and um, because of of uh, constraints on on how much burden we can put on the participants, again, we continued to use a dietary screener rather than a more rigorous um, outcome measure. And then, you know, really because we're lacking that control group, uh, it really limits our ability to assign a cause. Um, to the, to the association that we found. Um, and there are other reasons why we might've seen these changes. So for example, we know that just being on SNAP for an extended period of time increases, um, food security. And so it could just be that, you know, being on SNAP for those additional seven weeks is what caused the decrease in, in food insecurity. However, you know, at the time that we were doing this study and the previous one, there really wasn't a lot in the literature. And we were really doing our best to try to do some, some studies that would help to start fill, that, fill, fill, fill in that, that hole in the literature. And so one of the things that uh, we did that kind of moved the field forward a little bit is we were using validated measurement tools, uh, we weren't relying, uh, on participant perceptions, though, um, also a a valid and, and interesting measure, uh, participant perceptions of whether or not they've increased in fruits and vegetables, um, is, is, is thought to be a less valid measure of how much people actually eat than a screener like we used. And, um, really uh, we were able to add to this you know, very sparse literature in an area that was seeing a huge amount of national as well as local investment. And so with that, I would like to hand things over to Dr. Atelier, uh to discuss um, the, the next steps that we took.
4: Thank you very much, Dr. Doward. So in this next study, we were looking at um, the impact of double of food box on participants, fruits and vegetables intake. And we did improve on some of the methodology methodological issues flagged by Dr. Doward and um, Mattia in the previous. Um, Presentation. So for this one, we did recruited um, SNAP recipients who live nearby, and what we did was to first um, create awareness of the program among this population, and um, we recruited them to see um, the evaluation of um, the participation in the program via mail and telephone. So when we were doing the awareness creation, some of the question that came up to check uh, on their awareness is if they already know about the program and if they know any participating uh, farmers market near them, and we were able to give them information of specific ones that are nearby, and so we add a, long, a longer-term um, evaluation among these participants because we got them involved before the farmers market season, which was in June, and then we did a check on their uh, use of the program at the meat um, farmers market season, that was in August, and the last check we did was in October at the end of the farmer's market. So at this different time point, we are checking on their use of the double of double food box program as well as their fruit and vegetable intake, and we did a linear mixed method analysis to check um, their change over time and change between um, individual intake. Um, You can move on to the next slide. So like I said, we had a larger sample size compared to the previous two two studies. We had 212 participants with a mean age of 43.5 years and majority of them were female white. They had um, higher, educational level that is above 11th grade and majority of them and less than $20,000 in a year. So in terms of um, change in the use of the program, so after we created awareness, we did see about 16.5% increase, I mean, 15.5% in the total sample size, who used double of food box, and about 13.7 of them, that is 29, were new people that were taking up the program, while well, six already used the program before the, the evaluation we did. So, we evaluated their change in fruit and vegetable intake. So, this uh, graph is showing before the season, mid season, and at the end of the season. Uh, we tried to see how the intake of those who use double of food box is different from those who do not use. We did see that those who use double law food box, they have higher fruit and vegetable intake compared to those who did not use the double law food box program. However, the intake of fruit and vegetable did not increase. If you see the line is slightly going downward. So meaning that they did in- decrease their intake over time, but um, despite that, those who use double of food box, they still have a higher intake compared to, we compare with those who did not use double of food box. And we believe that um, this result is contrary to the hypothesis that participation in double of food box can increase um, consumption. However, we can leverage on um, Some of the factors that encourages the user of double-off food box in getting us to know how we can uh, improve um, factors and conditions to help those who never use a program to continue to use a program. Next slide, please. And so that leads me to the second um, paper that I'm going to talk about, where we wanted to know about barriers and facilitators that encourage the choice of double-off food box among the user. Next slide. So, using the same sample size, like I mentioned in the previous presentation, we looked at some of the factors that can influence um, participation or encourage participation in the program. We looked at, yeah, fruit and, baseline fruit and vegetable intake, their possession of a car, the time it takes for them to travel to visit the farmer's market and whether they participate in other food assistance program. And we did see that uh, the baseline fruit and vegetable was a facilitator of um, their use of double law food box. You see here that the graph is showing that those who have higher baseline fruit and vegetable intake are more likely to use the program compared to those who have lower baseline fruit and vegetable intake. And the second factor here is showing that the use of SNAP at the farmers' market is also a contributor to them them using the program, which is intuitive. Definitely anyone that visited uh, the farmers' market to use their SNAP would we'll definitely have access to the fruit and vegetables available and the doubling that is available to them. Next slide. And um, for that analysis, we also incorporated other co to help us have a holistic view of other factors contributing to the use of the program. We did see that having a car um, is a facilitator of using the program, um, the number of children um, for in that regard, uh, family that have larger um, household size are less likely to use the program. And also those who have um, lower income, the lower their annual income, the less likely they have to use up the program. So all these are the factors that helped us to make some recommendations on how, on some things to change around the program. We hope that those might be co- incorporated in future, one of which is um, expanding the value of um, double love food box that, uh, I mean, in dollar amount that families get based on their family size. So those with the biggest family size can have more money come to them to encourage them to take on the program. Uh, words well, you can move on to the next slide, please. Okay, so I would turn it over to Carrie.
2: Thank you, done Yeah, so, um... In 2018, um, we were interested in conducting research that uh, would be very cost-effective even more because we were actually between grants that year. Um, So even more uh, inexpensive than what we had previously done. And there was a lot of interest from the programmatic side of understanding patterns of program use. How many individuals were using the program? Were they going to multiple markets? Were they coming back multiple times a season? Or were the majority of people just coming once per season? So so we kind of had this question, would uh, participants allow us to Uh, Add a sticker to their horizon card, which is how we we collected how we collect EBT data. Um, And um, and then uh, the you know, the market, the person at the market booth was already writing down uh, the amounts of the transactions. And we just asked them to add this sticker number uh, to each transaction uh, to be able to track individual participants between time or throughout time. And it turned out that, yes, participants were uh, willing to let us put a sticker on the card, um, but that um, collecting that data definitely stretched market capacity um, a little bit. So you can see we collected this data in both 2018 and 2019, and in 2018, we um, we only were able to have about sixty six percent of our total transactions that uh, we were able to successfully uh, get that sticker number associated with, um, and so we we addressed some of those capacity problems as well as you know just things to make it easier for markets to try to collect that data. And in twenty nineteen we were able to collect information on about 98% of the transactions. And so it's really important to realize that uh, with this data, we're not collecting any personal data from consumers. We don't know anything about their demographics or how much fruit and vegetables they, they take or they, they eat. We only know about you know how many times they're visiting markets, how much SNAP they're requesting and how much double up incentive they are getting to purchase additional fruits and vegetables. So the first thing that we looked at was frequency of program use. And so in this graph, you can see the 2019 data on the left and the 2018 data on the right. Um, Participants who uh, only came once, who only had a single transaction in the database are shown in orange. And you can see that that is about 60% of the transactions in both years. Um, Participants who had about two transactions are above that in gray. Um, and that's about 15% of of our transactions. Three to 5% is about uh, 15 to 20%. And then six to 10 transactions is um, a a much smaller uh, percentage up at the top. So um, we've got uh, six to 10 transactions in blue, and then more than 10 transactions in green. And so the other thing that we were interested in looking at, um, and the data shown here is from 2018. We saw a very similar pattern in 2019, but for sake of time, I'm, I'm not showing you both grants graphs. Um, we were interested in the frequency of shopping and how much benefits individuals got. And so the dots on the graph are uh, individuals, so an individual sticker number. And um, this is the total amount that they are getting dispersed at farmers markets in the 2018 season. And so in orange, it's the total amount of incentive or matching dollars that they that they earned or that they received. And in blue, it's the total amount of SNAP that they received. And so you can see that the total amount of SNAP, uh, people who visited fewer times could still get quite a bit of SNAP because it wasn't limited by, you know, the maximum amount of match per visit. So some individuals would come and if they were purchasing something that was very expensive, say, um, you know, uh, half of a, of a cow or, um, uh, you know, several bushes of peaches to do canning, <laughs> they might get a lot of SNAP dollars out um, in a single SNAP visit. Um, whereas, uh, at this time they were limited to $10 of, of double up food bucks incentive, uh, per visit. Um, and so this pattern was, was, was somewhat expected. And so then we were kind of interested in looking at the total revenue for the farmer's markets by shopping frequency. And so we have, One-time customers on the left, two to three times in the middle and four or more times on the right. And as you can see, um, although the majority of our customers were one-time visitors, um, they, you know, really are are not contributing the majority of the revenue um, just because they, you know, they're only spending SNAP and they're only earning double up uh, that one time. So the snap is in the darker blue and the double up food box is in the lighter teal blue. And so really the people who are coming back multiple times, four or more times are contributing the most, uh, to the total market revenue. Although, you know, uh, we're still seeing significant, um, contributions from our, our single time visitors and our, our less frequent visitors. And so um, takeaways from this work, uh, you know, both our frequent and our one time customers are all contributing to total revenue, but frequent program use is going to result in higher benefits for the individual or the household. And um, from a programmatic standpoint, uh, using stickers is a feasible way of of tracking users and and looking at patterns of program use if digital options are unavailable uh, for programs. So really briefly I I also wanted to emphasize the connection between research and practice that made this work possible. our research team is really part of a very large network of public health partners across Utah um, that are working hard to promote food access um, and local food among individuals of low income. And so, you know, just a sampling of these groups, uh, we mentioned Utahns Against Hunger as the original grantee. There's also a group at the Utah department of Health and Human Services that's worked with this, uh, the current grantee, Utah Department of Health, um, all of the different farmers markets that have worked very hard to implement this program, both to benefit their market as well as individuals in their community. Um, Within the past few years, the Utah Farmers Market Network, a coalition of farmers markets has been started. Um, USU Extension, uh, as well as one of our flagship programs, SNAP-Ed has done quite a bit to support uh, this type of programming and research, and um, many more. Um, and so our partners are are doing a lot of really important work that makes our our research and evaluation work uh, possible. So they are on the ground leading the programming efforts. They are um, so both the Feeney Grant and the Gustip Grant are are require one to one matches, which um, definitely is a huge lift and so doing the um doing the fundraising uh for the early years of Feeney as well as working with with other groups involved uh with local food to actually lobby for state appropriations uh which provide uh the match um in more recent years uh was was another huge lift and then also obtaining the external grant funding to to implement these incentive programs and then our research team members really um, are able to, to bring research expertise and knowledge to the table, uh, to share lessons learned and help help adjust programming uh, based on, on what we learn, and um, also assist with the dissemination of the results into the peer-reviewed literature. So that is something that is typically uh, not feasible, not within the capacity, uh, time-wise of the our partners, just because they <laughs> they are focusing so much on on getting the actual programming done and the incentives into the hands of people who need them, and so I, you know, um, we were a little bit surprised by the finding that Abia Dun presented, where. Um, participating in in our natural experiment when we follow people through time that we didn't see an increase in fruit and vegetable intake like we had in our um convenience sample longitudinal studies um and so this kind of unexpected finding uh definitely is something that has taken a while to kind of wrap our brains around um but it um I I, I wanna emphasize that it doesn't necessarily mean that the the program is is not valuable or isn't working. Um, The main goal of the program was to increase sales of local fruits and vegetables to the low-income consumer base. And a recent systematic review came out um, that uh, systematic review and meta-analysis came out in 2022. And they found consistent findings in, in both their narrative systematic review as well as in the meta-analysis that of increased sales. And um, so that's great news. Um, we are supporting uh, the local food economy. We're increasing uh, local communities' ability to be, you, know, self-sustaining um, and sustainable in their, in their food intake um, and it, or in their food production. Uh, which is definitely, you know, of interest after the, you know, supply chain issues that we saw with the COVID pandemic. Um, when this uh, systematic review and meta-analysis looked at consumption, they really saw mixed results And in this, in the narrative systematic review. And in the meta-analysis, they did not see a significant change in consumption. And so uh, another thing that they noted was that the consumption studies were mostly low-quality studies um, due to, like we talked about with our studies, uh, them being limited typically to small convenient samples and the use of uh, limited self-report measures of intake. So for the measure of of study quality that they were looking at, having an objective measure of an outcome was was really important. And as my audience here probably is very familiar having an objective measure of dietary intake is is very difficult um but there's definitely room for improvement you know using multiple 24-hour recalls for example might provide a less biased measure of of dietary intake um the other thing to be aware of with this meta-analysis um they did do the eggers test to look for publication bias and they did not find a significant result uh, for the consumption studies, but they did find a significant result for the Eggers test. So there's a possibility that um, some negative studies were not were not published about sales. Um, but they 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 warned us that the results of those Eggers tests were potentially skewed by some studies with large effect sizes or higher precision um, because of small. Uh, overall number of studies. And so the other thing I think is important, we did not present any of these results today, but um, anecdotally, as well as through uh, systematic qualitative research, uh, we have learned about the positive impact that this program has on the lives of individuals who use it. And so I think um, one thing that I would like our listeners to think about is um, even if we are not taking people with, with low income or low intake and, and creating people who, who have a higher intake of fruit and vegetables, if we start out with individuals who are on SNAP benefits, but have an interest in eating more fruits and vegetables or are used to eating more fruits and vegetables. And we make it possible for them to continue to do that, that that is of public health interest as well. Um, although maybe not the first thing that we think of as as nutrition educators and so uh to evaluate impact on consumption um we uh, the field really needs uh larger statistically powered samples uh using more rigorous measures so we um you know the the number of objective measures are pretty few but it might be possible to do um carotenoid skin scans or or um Carotenoid blood samples, of course, those have their their own limitations. Uh, for example, not all fruits and vegetables have carotenoids in them, and I'd be happy to talk more about the limitations there. Um, but like I said, doing multiple 24-hour recalls um, or a combination of a 24-hour recall and a food frequency questionnaire. Um, would be a more rigorous way to, to evaluate dietary intake. Um, the other thing that would really be of interest is not only evaluating the adult, the primary shopper in the household, but also looking at the impact that this is having on, on children in the household. And of, also of interest, having a large enough sample to evaluate subgroups. So Abia, Dr. Atelier talked a little bit about how larger in our study, larger households, as well as people with lower incomes within the SNAP, uh, population, were less likely to choose to use the program. And so as we think about um, health disparities, as well as equity, as we try to continue to increase and scale up these programs, thinking about the effect of the program on different subgroups, whether it's different racial ethnic subgroups, whether it is uh, income or, or family size, is important to make sure that the program is uh, rolling out in an equitable way. There are also, you know, a lot of research questions that are left hanging. So one of the one of the few uh, random control studies that we have of of incentives at farmers markets. So this is the um, the report, the, the preliminary report published by Vericker et al. Uh, uh, of of the Feeny program they found that a lot of individuals in the program reported spending less of their own money on fruits and vegetables. And so this might be a reason why they, as well as us in our our study, found that participants had had higher intake, but that they didn't increase in intake. So it could be that, you know, we don't have a, a continuously upward flexibility in how much money is spent, and that these incentives allow people to move money around, Potentially being able to afford other important things like diapers or formula or rent. Um, I think uh, uh, more research into who chooses to use the program, that equity issue, um, is important to look at going forward and whether outcomes are different for subgroups. And as far as programming goes, I think an important question is how do we expand these programs in an equitable way? How do we reach more individuals, potentially people who have more need of the program and perhaps less capacity or less bandwidth to be able to use it? So the individuals who have a lower income, individuals who um, maybe have a lot of kids, maybe are working multiple jobs, can't get to the farmer's markets. Or um, perhaps don't have cars and so aren't able to bring home several lugs of peaches uh, from the farmers markets. And then another question, something that we didn't touch on a lot today, but as Dr. Atolier talked about, you know, um, the majority of people, the mature, majority of SNAP recipients that we recruited for, for our, our second study or our third study that we discussed today, we're not aware of the program. And this is familiar throughout the literature. So it, it is a common theme that people are just not aware of the program. And um, how do we go about doing that, as well as how do we make sure that we have enough program resources to serve a larger population if we increase program awareness. So really quickly, a huge thank you uh, to program leadership past and present, as well as uh, people who uh, participated in data collection, uh, especially our participating farmers markets who were generally doing this, you know, uh, just because they felt like this program was important to have at their farmers markets. Uh, we've also had quite a few undergraduate students uh, work helping to collect data and, um, and process data as well. And of course, uh, the USDA, the, the Feeney grant and the GusNIP grant did provide uh, funds that, that made this work possible. So with that, I think we'd like to wrap up and open for
1: any questions. Thank you so much. If anyone has any questions, please put those in the question and answer in the chat box. It was wonderful to hear about your papers and to hear updates and and about the current literature in this area. Um, Just one specific question that I had. Did you gather any information or do you have a hypothesis as to why larger families were less likely to use the program? You want to speak
2: to that,
4: Abidun? Yeah, I can. So we came up with some, like, hypotheses, like you mentioned. Probably it can be tied to the nature of the program in Utah because the Double Up Food Box program is available during the summer when most families, I would say children, are back home. So it might be due to maybe... Um, a child care issue during the time, maybe to visit the um, market and stuff like that. So yeah, that is just one. I don't know if Dr. Kari wants to add to that.
2: Like Dr. Tollier mentioned as well, um, at the time when we did the study, it was limited to 10 extra dollars of matching funds. And so in Utah, larger families are quite large. And so 10 extra dollars, when you're trying to feed a family of five or six or seven, you know, nine, 10 people, uh, doesn't go as far. It's not as much of an incentive as it is. If you are a family of, of two or three, um, was, was the other hypothesis that we had.
1: Okay. And what about, Great question? Thanks. yeah. What about, for lower, families with lower income being less likely to use the program, any hypotheses there?
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, the work that uh, Dr. Roskis headed up looking uh, qualitative work, as well as other qualitative work in the literature, has definitely talked about kind of um, both the, the reasons why low-income participants value going to farmers markets, but also the reasons why there are more barriers to going to farmers markets to use programs. And so those barriers include uh, the fact that the farmer's market's only open for for limited hours and days of the week, um, which we hypothesize, you know, if you're if you're of lower income and you have less capacity, um, can make it difficult uh, to to get there and and use the program.
1: Okay. Yeah. And. I think you answered this in the presentation, but I just wanted to ask it because I wasn't 100% clear. Um, Do you think that the double up food box was increasing fruits and vegetable intake? Or do you think there's a potential that people who ate more fruits and vegetables were more likely to use double up food bucks?
3: Yes.
2: Um, So I think both. Both are true. So, um, you know, when you talk to participants, they definitely feel like, um, the program is increasing their fruit and vegetable intake or increasing their ability to eat fruits and vegetables. I was actually just looking through our program evaluation, our intercept surveys from the last year. And we actually had somebody comment in an open-ended question. Like I'm somebody who already eats a lot of fruits and vegetables, but this program allows me to to purchase more for my family. And I feel like it allows us to to eat more fruits and vegetables than we would be able to otherwise. So um, I I think that it's it's possible that it could be increasing fruits and vegetables. It seems like right now, the body of evidence from the meta-analysis, as well as our best um, study design indicates that Instead, it's people who, who already value eating fruits and vegetables, who are already eating a lot of them, who maybe can overcome those, those larger barriers, get to the farmer's market and use the program to help support their, their preferred dietary intakes. Yeah. Um,
1: so, so it's supporting people who want to eat more fruits and vegetables to eat more fruits and vegetables.
2: Yeah, yeah, the, you know, um, the Healthy Incentives pilot that the USDA did before they started this program, uh, looked at a similar program but it was done um in primarily in in supermarkets and that was a a really well-done, well-controlled really really an incredible study which, you know, cost millions of dollars to to do. <laughs> um but they found that individuals increase their fruit and vegetable intake using really rigorous measures, a really well done uh, generalizable sample. Um, but it's somewhat of a different program. And so um, you know, I really think that we need a similar study that can be done um, looking at the fruit and vegetable consumption with, with these farmers' market programs, which are popular for other reasons. Um, and I, I think that that kind of a study would be of value.
1: It would be interesting to see that as the next step. Well, I want to thank all three of you for being here today and for sharing your work with us. And at this point I can pass it back to Rachel. Yes. Thank you very much. much.
0: Just a reminder, when I close the webinar, there's a short survey. We appreciate your feedback. And then watch for an email follow-up, should be Wednesday of this week, uh, with a link to the recording, uh, the CEU certificate, uh, and the handout for today's presentation. So this is the last session of the Best of Fall Journal Club series. Um, I'm happy to say that Spring Journal Club will return. Um, Kristen has been working with the Digitech division on a technology-focused series. Uh, We plan to have that first webinar on um, February 12th. Um, In the meantime, I'll make a pitch out for abstract reviewers. Um, There's a deadline of uh, December 9th if you would like to help review abstracts for the 2023 conference. So thank you very much.